0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson.
0: And I'm Rachel Sylvester, and we're talking to remarkable people who've overcome adversity or trauma in their childhood years to achieve extraordinary things. Our guest today is an inventor, engineer, entrepreneur and farmer who is still best known for his bagless vacuum cleaner. Sir James Dyson is Britain's richest man with a wealth of more than £16 billion, a university, an art collection and an extraordinary country estate.
1: He's also the largest landowner in England, farming more than 35,000 acres of peas and potatoes, although he calls himself a farmer from North Norfolk, as well as having a global business making his hand dryers and hair dryers. Yet for most of his life he was
0: counting the pennies His father died when he was nine, he found academic work a challenge and he's suffered multiple setbacks as he struggled to sell his inventions. The secret of success,
1: he insists, is to embrace failure and learn from it. He built and tested more than 5,000 prototypes of his vacuum cleaner before finding the one that worked. He still pushes himself in
0: his 70s, admitting, It is scary, I'm scared all the time. Fear, though, can be a good thing as it pumps the adrenaline and motivates. Mm -hmm.
1: James Dyson, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. We're fascinated on this show by the power of flaws and imperfections in life. Why do you think failure is just so important in business?
2: Well, I, actually, I think it's important everywhere. Because you learn from failures. You know, why did that fail? How can I make it work? And that's uh, in, in solving that problem, you, you're achieving something. You're making progress. Whereas success, you sort of sit back and, and, and enjoy the success without questioning, how could I have made it better? So I, I think failure is it's really important to embrace it, not worry about it, but actually come to rather enjoy it, what, however big the setback is. But if, if we have a too much fear of it, it it stymies us, it, it, it paralyzes us.
0: When we want to take you back to your childhood, because although you've been incredibly successful in your life since, and your childhood seems pretty idyllic, you were born just after the war in austerity britain and you grew up in norfolk surrounded by vast beaches infinite horizons and english countryside can you describe it what was it like what were your earliest memories
2: well we, as you say we lived in north norfolk and people didn't go to north norfolk in those days it was a very cut-off part of the country although there still trains went to it but you know people didn't travel then people stayed in the same hometown um it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. It's got the most extraordinary coastline. Uh, you've got Sherringham and Cromer uh, and, and West Rundham with which are traditional seasides with sand and, and, and sea and deck chairs and things. And then you get into the really interesting bit beyond Weybourne, to Blakeney Point and um, Abraham's Bosom, they call it, and uh, the much-talked-about beautiful, beautiful Holcomb Beach and Skullhead and so on, all the way to Hunstanton. It's the most beautiful, beautiful coastline. I mean, the only problem with it is the sea's very cold. And also, there's nothing between you and the North Pole in one direction and Siberia in the other. But, um, and it's very flat, although it's not actually quite so flat in North Norfolk. Um, and uh, as, as you say, you, you, you bought in local shops. There were no supermarkets. There was no television. Um, the first television I ever saw was The Coronation in 1953 at a friend's television, a richer friend's television. We didn't have a television. Um, And so you did things. I mean, we we built tunnels, we climbed trees, we we, um, sailed boats. Uh, It's a typical Arthur Ransom, idyllic upbringing with no money, but um, freedom, the most beautiful countryside, uh, no health and safety. Um, And I was really fortunate to be brought up. Uh, in almost inside Gresham School, which has huge grounds and beautiful facilities, so in the holidays, we could swim in the swimming pool, play in the tennis courts, play in the squash courts, and when the swimming pool froze open in the winter, we went and played ice hockey on it so i mean I, I, but not with not with the proper gear but with all, hockey sticks and tennis balls but it, you know it was and there the was a little group of us i mean the the children of teachers post war children of um, Teachers whose parents had come back from the army or navy or the air force during the war, so it was a a very unreal time in a way, Um, but idyllic, Um, and money wasn't wasn't important at all because we we had this beautiful landscape and uh, the most glorious of times with our friends using the facilities. So it was really I was really really lucky.
1: And you had a very academic older brother and older sister. Were you always the rebellious third child, do you think? Do you feel you had to keep up or had to be different?
2: Yes, I think I was a typical third child. Uh, Yes, my brother was was brilliant. I mean, you you could sing him a song and he'd sing it back to the correct tune and with the correct words. I mean, what can you do if you've got a brother like that? (laughs) And uh, he went on to... I don't think he worked that hard, but he went on to get an open classics scholarship at Cambridge. Um... It was, a, it was a hard act to follow, so I did things my way. I did things I enjoyed doing, which is sort of everything else but work at school. <laughs> you
0: and even learned uh, the bassoon, didn't you? Is I learned
2: the bassoon. Yeah, yeah. I was nine, and the headmaster announced at prayers that they needed people to play the oboe, the, the violin, and, and the bassoon. And I put my hand up because I had no idea what it was, <laughs> so I thought I'd have a go at it um so I I think I like that sort of challenge
1: and your father Alex sounded like an extraordinary figure in a way because he served in Burma and sort of sniper infested jungles and then came back to teach at Gresham's and he ran the cadet force and he was coaching hockey and rugby and playing recorder and I mean just Mm. sounded like an extraordinary polymath he was incredibly charismatic but also quite eccentric probably did that enthusiasm impart itself in you I
2: I think it must have. I think those things do rub off on people. He did everything. I mean, he played the recorder in a recording group. He produced the school plays. Uh, He did Shakespeare play um, every year in the open. We had a lovely big open theatre. And I've still got his miniature volumes of Shakespeare, which are hardly bigger than a matchbox, with his notes in it written in pencil. Um, And uh, so he produced plays. He played hockey, played rugger. Um, coached hockey and rugger he was head of the school CCF the combined cadet force Um, he sailed he he, he sailed with the school sailing club Um, at home he made lead soldiers very keen amateur photographers so we printed our own pictures in the dark room which was really interesting as a child watching watching the image appear on the paper in the the, uh, developing tank and we we had a vegetable garden, and we kept um, ducks and chickens and things. Uh, he, he was just incredibly busy all the time. Mm. He never stood still. Mm. I've got a photo of him sitting reading in the evening, but I don't really remember him ever doing that. He was, <laughs> <laughs> he was always doing things.
1: And your mother was five foot eleven, which probably explains why you're so tall. But she taught you to sew and um, to do crafts, didn't she? And I mean, she just sounds like she was a very good painter as well.
2: Yes, and, and my father, yes. he. Um, yes, she She was a good painter. Um, she left school at 17. She was at the Perth School in Cambridge. She, le- she left at 17, so didn't go to university, but instead um, pushed around those aircraft positions at RAF Tangmere in Sussex, with Winston Churchill looking off from the balcony. Um, she did that and then married my father and had children uh, through the war. Uh, and then after my father died, she went to teacher training college and ultimately Cambridge to read English at the age of 50. And then she died five years later of cancer. But, um, so she and I were students at the same time,
1: which, <laughs> oh, <laughs> kind of. which was rather fun. Mm-hmm. Did you do anything together at all? I mean, did you go off to the cinema or um, oh, Freshers' Week? They probably didn't have Freshers' Week then. But the...
2: Oh, no, we, we went on, on holidays, to camping holidays to mm. Scotland, um, where it rained and blew and rained and blew, and finally the tent blew away. We were playing Racing Demon and eating porridge because it was pouring as rain outside, and it was before the days of built-in ground sheets. And the whole thing blew away, so all our playing cards went over the field. um, So we gave up Scotland and went uh, across to France in our Morris Minor and travelled across France, uh, which was lovely, and um, she dragged me round all the churches and cathedrals and things which I didn't really want to do but I'm really glad she did it mm. and,
0: and then when you were the eight you were driving back from a family holiday in Cornwall and you stopped for a picnic can you just describe what happened
2: yes it was our our last family holiday we stayed in a friend's cottage at Paul's Earth and um we stopped on Dartmoor because we had a, a big old standard 12 with a you know, it didn't have a caravan but it was a big old standard 12 and we stopped for a picnic and um I was walking through the bracken exploring um, Dartmoor and I came round the corner and saw my father being violently sick and it was a particularly nasty colour sick. And he said, don't tell mummy. Right. Yeah, so we wandered back and I kept silent. Did you you immediately
0: realise it was something quite serious?
2: Do you know, I don't think I did really. Mm. I knew he was ill and... um, he was having a severe radiation. I mean, he had huge red circles on his chest and on his back because he had um, lung and throat cancer. And I remember being appalled at that and saying, what is that? You know, and he, mm. he explained it. But, I mean, people didn't talk about cancer in those days. You didn't mm. understand that cancer was a killer because uh, mm. uh, people just didn't talk about it. Mm. And, and, and it? anyway, as an eight-year-old, I wouldn't really mm. have been aware of it.
1: When was the last time you saw him? Because he kept going up and down to London to, to, to have treatment. Did you realise ever that you were saying goodbye to him?
2: No, no, not at all. No, he, um, I mean, he went to London for long spells uh, for treatment and, um, and then came back. And uh, and then the last time I saw him, um, he, he was carrying his little suitcase, leather suitcase, and he said goodbye to us and walked to the station, which is a, 20-minute walk, and that was the last time I ever saw him.
1: Can you still visualise that? Yes.
2: No. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Very much so. Was
1: he incredibly stoic?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, in retrospect, I mean, I was saying goodbye to Dad, he was off to hospital, but um, I didn't know he was going to die. But hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it's his courage. And Do you think he knew he was going for the last time? I mean, yeah, he must, well... Yeah, he must have known there was a big chance of that. I think the doctors must have been fairly honest with him.
0: And can you remember how you found out that he died and what you felt? Yeah. Yes, he, well, he,
2: he actually wrote us letters, so I think he knew he was dying. And um, now, sitting with my mother and my brother, having strange enough asparagus soup. I remember, <laughs> I remember the soup, mm-hmm. and there was a phone call, and then my mother came in and. Gave us the news.
0: Hmm. And what did he say in his letter to you?
2: Oh,
1: I think it was a
2: how-to-live-your-life sort of letter.
1: Have you still got it? Yes, I have. Oh. And do you read it sometimes? No, I can't find it at the moment. I know I've got it, but I can't find it. He'd be absolutely sort of amazed by what you've done, though, wouldn't he? Because he can't have imagined in the letter that he was ever going to put, you know, become an inventor, you know, a farmer, a polymath, a...
2: Yes, I, I, I think it would have been, yeah, I think it would been disappointing in me at school, but then pleased with what I've done since, uh, rather like my mother. My mother died um, long before I started the vacuum cleaner company, but I'd been making ball barrows, and being an inventor and a designer, and she, she was really interested and loved that. I think she, really, she was really pleased I did something different and sort of um, surprised. Mm. <laughs> In a nice way.
0: Mm-hmm. And what did the head teacher or the teachers say to you? Were they very supportive or were you pretty much on your own stiff upper lip?
2: Oh, on my own stiff upper okay. lip, treated like all the other boys. Right. Yeah, uh, that's right. That was absolutely the right thing to do.
1: Do you think so? But, yes. Do you still yes. do it then? Do you think it's better to bottle it up or. No,
2: no, no I don't <laughs> think that. But I, I, don't, I don't think a child should be treated any differently because they've had a disaster like that. Right. Uh, I mean in, in front of other children but maybe you don't private, want to be different pri- yes privately mm. Mm. have some have show sympathy and empathy
1: but how often did you see your mother then did you just go back in holidays or?
2: well yes that's, mm. that's the thing we, we were allowed out um, for part of Sunday three times a year so I, I saw her then but otherwise I wasn't allowed to go home and it's odd because it was almost part of the school the house <laughs> so I had to walk past <laughs> it but not go in it couldn't live in and get a biscuit or something like that and had to walk past it and
0: uh, that must have been incredibly hard for her as well because she must have missed you and your brother as well as your father
2: yes well yes but she used to come and watch games some match school matches and, and and some school events so i saw her then and briefly afterwards um But, you know, I was like like any other border. I I didn't feel different because of that. It was just slightly odd, but it was all so close. And maybe that was a help, actually. Mm.
1: And do you think you can assess now what sort of impact it had on you, losing your father that young? Because so many people that Rachel and I have interviewed have lost a parent very young, and it does seem to provide this sort of really almost like spur to success sometimes, that you, you want to do something, you want to feel that you're continuing their life in some way or proving yourself? Yes, pro- probably
2: all of those. Um, but I, I think that you, you suddenly realise how alone you are. You've lost one of, well, in my case, one of my guides. Uh, and I had no father to give an example or to... Um, or to, or to be able to do sort of fatherly things with. Um, but I, I think this feeling of being on your own is what I felt the most. And I mean, part of that's rather nice, actually. <laughs> uh, but I think you inevitably, therefore, make lots of mistakes uh, and and, um, and learn from them. Uh, and I, I, I... Certainly, the, the decision to be a little bit of a rebel at school and um, not do everything other than work hard academically I mean I did work academically but I didn't swat and and revise and do all those sort of things although I I also did A-level English as well as Latin, Greek and ancient history and art and I I loved English I mean I failed it but I loved it (laughs) Uh, because you know I didn't revise (laughs) I'd much rather go and act in a play or play rugger or go running or something than, than do do revision, play the bassoon, than do revision. Um, but uh, the, the important thing for me was having done it, actually, not, not the exam result.
0: So do you think that aloneness or does it give you a kind of self-reliance that's useful in business or is it that you're willing to take risks, you've got no- nothing to lose? Are there qualities that come from having suffered pain at an early age, do you think that...
2: Certainly I had nothing to lose. Mm. And so I, I'm not frightened of taking risks. I've got a lot to lose now, but I do take, still take risks. Mm. Um, because actually I like living on the edge. That's probably part of that upbringing, that there was never any money yeah. and I had no one to turn to. Even when I was a student, I had no one to turn to because my mother was also a student mm. with no money. Um, so I think the self-reliance is there. Uh, Willingness to take risks and quite enjoying living on the edge with a massive overdraft. <laughs> um, uh, I call that putting money to good use, but <laughs> the bank, bank managers might have another view on that. But um, yes, I, mean, I, I enjoy that. And maybe that's because, you know, I lost my father and then I lost my mother. Um, but particularly losing my father. Mm. Uh, it, There was no one to turn to. I was completely on my own, and perhaps being sent off to boarding school at that point accentuated that. Mm. I really was on my own. There were all these other boys there who had parents, often rich parents. All I had was a very poor mother, Mm. Um, and uh, no one giving me advice.
1: And you became a long-distance runner, which is even more lonely in a way, isn't it? Particularly on my sort of very flat land. I have this vision of you. you know, running along in sort of mud flats
2: yeah, right, actually in the a, pouring t- t- rain. <laughs> Tony, Tony Richardson's, the long-distance runner, Tom Corny, that came out at about that time. Mm. Yeah, and no, I loved I loved running. I mean, I, I discovered I was good at it um, at school. So suddenly I was at the front and then thought, oh, I can win this. Um, and then I loved the training. I don't love it now. I, do, I still run, but I, it, it's painful now. But in those days it was... One had boundless energy, and I used to run everywhere. Actually, as a child, I never walked. I couldn't see the point of walking. I ran everywhere. Impatient. Uh, impatient. Yes, impatient. <laughs> <laughs> impatient. And um, uh, so running came very naturally to me. And running in North Norfolk is actually lovely. Um, I'm running in lots of places. It's lovely, but North Norfolk, running across the heathland, and out to Blakeney Point and back, um, just really, um, running through farmland. Uh, which there is mostly crops rather than cows that might chase you, Um, uh, it was freedom. It was getting out of boarding school on my own, doing something entirely on my own and relying on myself. I mean, in a a running race, you're on your own. It's not a team event, which is not to say I didn't enjoy team sports. I enjoyed those as well. But uh, this was something I could do on my own Mm. and prove myself. On my own.
1: Your headmaster wrote a brilliant end, didn't he? That was I cannot believe that he's not really quite intelligent in your report when you left. Which yeah. actually is a double negative, but rather opposite, probably.
2: It was a great. Yeah, he, he was great at those sort of comments, um, and he's. Uh, uh, yeah, thank God he was partly right. Um, now I got on very well with him. He was. Uh, we, if, if you were ill, you had to get headmaster's signature so you could show this chit to people in every class the master in every class you went to that you had been ill you hadn't been skiving off Mm-mm. and I'd had diarrhea and he said I'm not going to sign it until you spell it correctly <laughs> so, <laughs> I still can't spell it correctly I, d- I actually discovered there's about three different ways of spelling it so <laughs>
0: <laughs> and do you think you're creativity and originality comes from having a brain that works in a different way at all? Or do you have a sort of different spatial awareness or is it all about personality?
2: Oh, I, I think... Um, I mean, I went to... I can draw. Yeah. Uh, and I went to art school for a year to do drawing and painting and really learned to draw properly. Um, and yes, I, I know my brain does work in a different way. Uh, it, it doesn't follow the straight train track that other people's brains follow. And yeah, the, the spatial awareness. I mean, I can go somewhere. There's, there's that wonderful dyslexic child that drew the whole of King's Cross Station. Do you remember? And um, uh, oh, it's Hugh Casson used to champion him. I'm I'm nothing like that, but I can draw, go somewhere, and draw the building afterwards, or draw a complete 3D plan of something having been somewhere. Amazing. So I've got
1: I've got that 3D spatial awareness, mm. as you call it. Mm. Do you think not doing an academic subject at university? Do you think that in a way actually made you want to prove yourself more that you wanted to show that you could be just as successful going to art school or doing something really creative rather than doing classics which would have been the obvious other one to do with your dad
2: i know what you're saying but no i, I mm. didn't feel like that um when i when i got to the college i worked incredibly hard and realized that i'd come home you know this is this is what i wanted yeah. to do and so worked very hard i didn't i wasn't trying to prove that i could I could be as successful as a very clever mm. exhibitionist at Cambridge. <laughs> Exhibitioner at Cambridge. Um, no, I, didn't, I didn't feel the need to compete with academics at all. Um, although, subsequently, I suppose, the you know, the, the brilliant first stocks or the brilliant first at Cambridge, they, those sort of people, the people who run the country, and, and the people who are very successful, and very successful in business as well. There was a certain... Um, And I've always felt it, that because I'm a designer and engineer, I can't be good at business. I can't run a company. Uh, And I think that's absolute nonsense. I mean, there's really no such thing as a businessman. I mean, what is a (laughs) businessman? So when I went to raise money to start the vacuum cleaner company, um, quite a few of the, they were called venture capitalists in those days, they're private equity now, said, well, you're not a businessman. I mean, you might have a good vacuum cleaner, but if you get someone from industry to run it, then we might consider backing it. So, it's a, my point is that, b- that being a designer um, or an engineer doesn't stop you running a business. No. <laughs>
0: but anyway, do you quite like that being an outsider, not yes, being the conventional businessman? Yes, I do. Quite, yes,
2: man. I, no, you, I no, you know. No, okay, not in your okay I, I slightly wallow in that. I yeah. quite enjoy that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but, um, I slightly enjoy. I'm I'm slightly suspicious of experts. And Jeremy Fry, my my only boss, (laughs) um, taught me to be suspicious of experts.
1: Mm. But you are an expert in a way. I mean, you are definitely with a vacuumless...
2: Yeah, but the moment you think you're an expert, you're in trouble.
1: Okay. Why? Because you become smug? You're
2: you're, you're living off your past. Right. And it gets in the way. But you must know more about
1: hairdryers than 0.01% of this population.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, I love hair dryers, but, but, um, <laughs> but yes, but, but you should never think you're an expert. Right. Um, and you should never be satisfied and listen to everybody because the most naive suggestions are the best ones. Mm. And we always try to approach everything in a naive way.
0: You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester... And the inventor, James Dyson. We'll be back after this. If you're a student, you can stay up to date on the stories that matter to you by getting a Times digital subscription for less than eight pence a day. You'll also get six months free access to Perlego's online library of academic resources and tools and access to the extensive Times archive, so you can always be the most informed and well-read person on campus. Subscribe today at thetimes.co.uk forward slash student. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the inventor, James Dyson. Why did you move into design rather than painting or sculpture? Was there a sense that you wanted to make things that were useful and practical and doing things with your hands? And I wonder whether that's at all to do with losing your father, that you felt there had to be a purpose to your work.
2: Um possibly it might have been underlying that no, I, I, um, I went to art school instead of doing voluntary service overseas because that's what all my friends were doing um, but I re- was really keen on art and I wanted to go to art school to see if that was what I wanted to do so I was busy um, painting life models and doing drawings and things and the principal invited me into his office because you do, you do, if you go to art school you do a foundation year and then three years of a degree course. So I was in my foundation year. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I think you'd be a good designer. Which was odd, because we didn't do design. We were just doing painting and drawing. And I said, well, what's that? <laughs> and because, you know, I was, well, you laugh, you see. But this is um, design wasn't on the agenda at all. It wasn't; You couldn't go into any shop and buy a good piece of design. It just, shots weren't interested in it mm. there was a design council in the Haymarket which had a sort of exhibition space which showcased good design and they were they were just starting to get a, a sort of grip on society but it, but it was one building in the Haymarket and even um, Sunday times magazine wasn 't really showing design so no newspapers were showing it and and there was none in any shops so i didn't know what it was so he explained what it was and okay. Stained glass design, interior design, product design. And it came to furniture design. Well, you know, I, I was familiar with furniture because I'd sat on chairs and sat at tables <laughs> and things. So I said, oh, well, I'd like to do that. And he, he had had a, a long association with the Royal College of Art. He'd been there as a student and he had taught there and I think he was on the council there. And he knew that they were, just for a year or two, they were doing an experiment, taking in someone from the foundation year who hadn't then done the degree course. And because the Royal College of Art is, is wholly postgraduate, so you spend three years there as a postgraduate student. So I completely skipped the BA course and went straight to doing an MA course. Um, so I managed to get in uh, to the furniture department. As a, as a, and we had spent four years there, which I was really thrilled mm. about. It wasn't hardship at all. Can you remember the first I,
1: thing you made there?
2: Yes, yes, I made, um, we had the most wonderful, uh, there was a proper workshop, and the teacher was the most brilliant um, cabinet maker who used to make cabinets for the Queen and Prince Charles and things. And he, um, he taught us to do secret lap dovetails. And uh, I don't know if you know what a secret lap dovetail is, but it's a, a dovetail is hard enough to do. Yes, I know but that. But a secret lap dovetail is a dovetail you can't see either inside or out, so it's all internal. And we had to make a box of secret lap dovetails. So that was, that was the first thing I oh, made. Nice not not really a useful thing at all. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I then went on and made a stool uh, with dovetails um, that was a magazine rack or, sco- or, or a stool, quite, quite big, made it in ash. Yeah, we called it a bum squeezer because when you sit (laughs) on it, your buttocks are pushed together.
1: Have you got it in your house now?
2: I've got it and I've uh, reproduced it. I've made six replicas, which I've given to my children. (laughs) I
1: (laughs) agree.
0: And then you did the ball barrow, which you mentioned, sort of wheelbarrow with a ball. No, I did the
2: sea truck first. Sea truck. The the, the landing craft.
0: But the Uh, ball barrow is interesting because that's when you realised you had to be ruthless sometimes in business as well because I think you didn't patent it and then... You effectively got forced out, didn't you? So you realised you had to be quite hard-nosed in business. You couldn't just be a happy, clappy artist.
2: Yes. I mean, um, there were were two problems with that business. One one was that I handed over the patent to the company. So I I didn't personally own the patent anymore. Mm. And we brought in investors, so I only had 30% of the shares. And so they were able to kick me out. Mm. Uh, I had the idea for the vacuum cleaner, and they poo-pooed it. Uh, and so kicked kick me out. Laugh in a so, way. well, you yeah, had the last laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't very nice at the time, but um, yeah, yeah. So, the, but, but the real lesson I learned was not to have shareholders and to have control of my own company. So I'm in control of my destiny. And
0: why did you keep going with 5,127 prototypes of the vacuum cleaner? It is incredible. Did you ever think about giving up? And also, what was it like when you did finally crack it? Was there a eureka moment, or was it a bit of a letdown in the end?
2: Um, it, it was a bit of a letdown, to be honest, and it sounds strange, but uh, if you've been pursuing something, trying to solve a problem, when you solve it, there's, um, you're actually quite exhausted, sort of mentally exhausted, <laughs> and, um, and there's, there's nothing to do anymore. I mean, in, in my case, there was a lot to do, but if you see what I mean, I, that, that one, I'd done that one, mm. and that was no longer an exciting problem to solve. I was on to the next one. And that's true all the time. When, you, when you've when you solved a problem, you're immediately on to the next one and you've got a better way of doing it. Because while you're doing it, although you've got to finish that one and get that one done and get that one onto the market, you're already on to the next one and maybe even the next one after that. So the brain is dreaming of the next the next ones. So that's why you, you don't break open a bottle of champagne if you've got to afford <laughs> mm-hmm. one because you know you're worrying about the next one. So it's a... It sounds like a horrible life, always to be worried and thinking and trying to solve a problem and moving on. When even when you've done that, you're on to the next one. Um, it, it's such a fascinating life that that you you're happy, but you have a crease in your brow all the time. <laughs> 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 So you could you could be, be happy being dissatisfied. Right. I think is what is what I'm trying to say.
1: Mm. Mm. And what did it feel like having to abandon the Dyson electric car? Because you spent something like 500 million on it, didn't you? Was yeah. did you regret that? Or did you did you think actually this is just a learning curve and I'll come back to it?
2: Um, no, I didn't think of it as a learning curve, and it and, and it it was um, yeah, well, it, it was a waste of money. But sort of wrong way to put it. But it, it was it was a failure. Was in it that sense. Painful, very painful failure, and and not just financially, but for all the people who worked on it and put their all into it, their creative all into it, and including me. You know, it was it occupied my life for five years, as well as doing other things. So it was a just a huge disappointment. A disappointment overshadows everything else, and disappointment also because it was the right thing to be doing. It's just that we could never have made money out of it. In the short or medium term. Because it because, needs explaining, actually, because no one's making money making electric cars. Everybody's losing a fortune making them. And the existing manufacturers do it because across their fleet, they have to have certain emissions of knocks and socks. And if they have one which has nothing, they can go on making the big gas guzzlers at the other end with impunity. So they, although they don't like losing money on a car, it actually helps them overall we've got another invention up our sleeves, which is a new technology battery, or we actually got two technologies which we're putting into production now. And I think that's, because we, we've got that and we're putting it into production, that's as important, if not more important, than an electric car. Because the Achilles heel of most products, whether it's battery watches or cars or anything, is how long the battery lasts mm. and the danger in the battery. Mm. Um, So we've solved that and we're putting that into production. And I couldn't do both because putting batteries into production is billions, billions, and so are cars. Mm. So as a private company, I couldn't do both. And the government didn't want to help. I went and asked, whereas the Singapore prime minister and the Singapore ministers would meet me and help me.
1: Why are we so short-sighted, do you think, about invention and innovation in Britain?
2: We don't like manufacturing.
1: Uh,
2: such a snobbery or? snobbery good old fashioned snobbery we've never liked it from Dickens onwards dark satanic mills Blake you know uh d- 2012 olympics those smoking stacks with women with huge <laughs> slave women with huge hammers yes
1: were you upset did you feel that you Very were being upset. personally attacked I, ne- I nearly
2: threw i've never thrown anything at the television but i nearly threw something at the television because the, the industrial revolution created extraordinary wealth and took everybody out of serfdom it's a wonder the smoke smoke is not a wonderful thing but the industrial revolution was a wonderful thing
1: so we're still Luddites, really, in a way. We're still of...
2: Luddites, and we don't like industry. And you know, when we tried to build a factory here, extend this factory, everybody got up in arms and, and, and stopped it, and it was referred to the Secretary of State. And that's what caused me to move because I needed factory. <laughs> what do I do? My sales are doubling every year. What do I do? Uh, so we had to go go somewhere where they like manufacturing
0: do you think the younger generation is different because you prefer to employ young people don't you rather than old experts as you say why yeah. is that
2: well because we're, we're trying to do different things and trying to find a new way of doing everything except perhaps financial accounting but everything we're trying to do in a new and better way and um it's difficult for people who've learned the old way and practiced the old way to change to a new way uh so I, I would much rather employ graduates everywhere in the business uh, and find a new way of doing things and so that they can feel they're pioneering. And I don't have to unteach their old way and teach them a new way.
1: Is that why you set up the university, so that you could actually do it your way and that you could give people the chance without having to spend a vast amount of money to both work for you and learn at the same time.
2: Yes, but I I have to give um, Joe Johnson credit because I went to see Joe Johnson complaining there weren't enough engineers coming out of British universities, which is true. And he said, well, start your own university then. And I, I didn't think I could do that. And he said, you can't, but you will be able to. So he got his... This um, was when he was the minister. This was when he was the minister of higher mm. education. And he, he, he got the bill, the bill went through Parliament, and it was defeated in the Lords with Chris Patton leading the opposition to defeat it. And then I, I, Joe gave me the idea, and then I thought, well, actually, it's a really good idea. I mean, we have a very young corpus here anyway. The average age here is 26, 28, because of my policy of taking in graduates. Um, and we have a very broad spectrum of engineering... going going from traditional engineering right through to software, robotics, fluid dynamics and um, artificial intelligence with a broad range of products. One of the most interesting things, I had a lovely email from a graduating engineer um, two or three weeks ago and he said, um, practicing engineering alongside the world-class scientists and engineers made me really want to learn the academic side. And he said, because of that, I got a first. And I'd never have got a first without having done that. So that was, for me, that was absolute confirmation that what we're doing is the right way of doing things. You know, they're they're being taught by people who have invented new technology batteries and some of them are working on the battery project. And I think we've assembled the best robotics, software, um, chemical, fluid dynamics engineers that you can get. So they're living and working alongside those people, being inspired by those people. And uh, that must be a wonderful thing. It's hard work. It's a 47-week year. It's not a 22-week. Do it <laughs> 47-week year. And they are exhausted by the end of it. And we had to give them an extra two weeks off because they were so exhausted. Um, but um, over two-thirds of them got a first. And the rest got two, two ones.
0: Mm.
2: So it's been... Ex- and most uh, of
1: them are staying on to work they're all, mm. they're all staying on they're
2: all staying on how many
1: people are now applying for it because it must be really well
2: it, it's really interesting that because um, when we started it I did one three minute slot on the Today programme Radio 4 Today programme we got a thousand applicants which we were completely astonished by and these are people who wanted to go to Oxford, Cambridge and Imperial and Russell Group universities they weren't dropouts they were, they were very serious people and, um, and we've always had that we've, we've done no advertising and nobody knows about it um, and we've had one or two articles an excellent article in the Times recently with a picture of the students throwing mortar mortarboards in the air um, but uh, apart from that n- nobody really knows about it but news has got around and we get a thousand applicants and uh, we don't necessarily take the A star pupils although we do look for high academic results but they spend two days here going through lots of tests and you know working together solving problems Um, because we don't necessarily want the very very brainy people who can't apply it we want we want a mix of people and uh, and I think we've got that and the fact that we haven't necessarily chosen the highest academic people yet more than two-thirds of them have got firsts is, is a great was a great tribute to them how hard they've worked and how how involved they've got in everything and rather interestingly because we're not a huge university there's only 150 of them now 160 but the first cohort there were only 33 of them and they bonded as a unit uh, incredibly well and helped each other through difficult their difficulties emotional difficulties and work difficulties.
0: So you're always trying to shake things up, whether it's a university or commerce and yearning for change and innovation. Is that why you also back Brexit? And I wonder whether you now feel, looking at how it's working out, whether it's become a rather sort of Little England uh, anti-immigration version of Brexit that isn't that sort of creative, innovative project you wanted
2: Well, I I would disagree with that because I don't think that's happened at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I wanted to leave largely... I mean, it's called sovereignty, but I call it psychological reasons, that you're much better off if you're on your own and you know you're on your own. Does that go back
1: to your running? Well, it goes back to the
2: running my my business and not wanting to be on the stock market and not wanting to be taken over by anybody. And, of course, course, the the best example of that is the vaccine development, Mm -hmm. where Boris rings up the friend who's who's a, a venture capitalist in vaccines and said, get in charge, let's, let's make a vaccine at Oxford. And, you know, we did it. And no one in Europe did it, did they? So I, it's for those reasons. Mm. That, and I think when, when when that comes through and people we realise we're on our own and we've got to succeed on our own, I think it'll make us stronger and better people.
1: Do you worry, though, it's about supply chains? I mean, that's the issue, isn't it, that... that I can see that it makes you much stronger being on your own, but on the other hand, you do need quite a large sort of supply chain throughout Europe and throughout the world to get the products here, as we're seeing at the moment. Is that an issue or not, do you think?
2: Well, I think it is an issue because Europe's being difficult and making things very difficult at the ports and, of course, in Northern Ireland. So if Europe behaved themselves and were normal and treated us like they do any other country outside the EU, the supply chains would be fine. But we've got to live through this period where they're embittered. But I think when we come out of that, um, the fact that we will live as neighbours and friends, as we did before we went into Brexit. I mean, so many of us were Francophiles. Well, I still am. But before Brexit, before we went into the EU in 1972, um, I'd just love to go back to that sort of relationship.
0: And why have you gone into farming in such a big way? Is it very important to you that it stays about food production? Because there's a trend now towards rewilding, bringing back bears and wolves and letting the countryside reclaim the land. What do you feel about that? Or do you think it should stay focused on food production?
2: Well, I I think food production is really important. Being self-sufficient in food is important. And um, farming well and, and decently and sustainably is really important um, and I certainly don't believe in real wilding I think it's nonsense, that means you start to import food and who's going to look after the countryside who's going to repair the walls and the fences and the trees and the ditches and the drainage and everything that farmers do as part of being a good farmer um, I'm, I mean I'm passionate about it, but I wasn't brought up on a farm but I worked on farms when I, as a schoolboy and as a student in Norfolk uh, so I think I learned to love farming from that. Uh, and I really do enjoy it. And I, I think in many ways, I and mean, this makes it sound nasty, but it's a bit like manufacturing. I mean, mm. if you want to be a manufacturer, then farming is a form of manufacturing. Mm. So uh, strawberries
1: are like, you know, hair dryers, really. <laughs> you, <know>? <laughs> <laughs> you have Dyson strawberries just and Dyson hair Just as tasty as hair dryers. <laughs> but, yeah,
2: no, I mean, that's... Uh, um, Yes, the strawberry thing is interesting because we, we've got these huge glass houses and we we put them next to an anaerobic digester. The anaerobic digester makes electricity from crops or waste crops. And um, we, normally we sell the electricity to the grid, but we get very little for it. It's rather like our potatoes and peas and everything else. We give it very little for what we produce. So it's much better to use the heat and the electricity to grow things out of season So we grow strawberries out of season. The farmers keep calling it in the shoulders of the season, which is a slightly irritating expression, but it it means that at either end when you have to fly strawberries in. So from now till Christmas, we'll be growing strawberries. And then we'll be growing strawberries from March through to May. And it's hugely automated. Uh, We don't have robots that actually do the picking, but that's the next thing we need. We're sponsoring some research at Cambridge on that. We're trying to make farming profitable in the, against the scenario of subsidies being reduced and probably removed completely. Well, they're effectively, for us, they're removed completely because the, the only monies we get now are for, for doing planting, um, for, for not farming effectively, mm. farming areas of farm where we don't farm. And um, I'm sure that'll go eventually as well. But I think the country has to think very carefully about farming. It, it isn't just something you can ignore and let go because next door to us in Europe, and for that matter in America, Australia, New Zealand, you've got farmers who are heavily subsidized. And so if you're growing peas or potatoes, how do you compete against a Dutch farm or a French farm that, or a Romanian farm that is heavily subsidized? For ages, I mean, we've, I bought lots of farms and none of them had a grain store on them. The EU gives capital grants for grain stores. So if you go on a Romanian farm, you'll find wonderful grain stores. Yet none of the farms I bought in England, in Lincolnshire, Oxfordshire or or Somerset had a grain store. So we had to build grain stores.
0: What did it feel like when you got to 40, which was the age at which your father died? Did you have a sort of gulp moment and think... I've really got to make the most of life now, well, even it, more it, accelerated. So
2: yes, I, I, oft, I often think I'm living on borrowed time because both my parents died so young. Uh, now I'm really lucky uh, to have lived so much longer, twice as long as my father. I mean, mm. And when I think of the life he had, you know, he was in Burma, India and Burma for five years during the war, away from his wife and his young children. And he came back and got, cancer almost immediately i mean what a a rotten life Mm.
1: (laughs) what do you think he'd have been proudest of that you've done i mean would he is there one particular invention that you know would have amused him or entertained him or
2: i I think he would he would have he would have liked a lot of things i've done non-professionally like sailing and painting and making things making furniture and so i think he and and some of the play acting i've done And I think he'd have loved all of that. I've got no idea about... I think he would have loved that I was being creative because he was, I think, desperately wanting to be creative with with his life. But um, I've no idea what he'd think about the business, the whole business side of it.
0: And looking back to your nine-year-old self sitting in the chapel at his memorial service, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Or what advice would you give to your young self?
2: Um, not to be worried about not knowing things, about being an expert, that would be really important, because that worried me for a long time. Um, not to be worried about academic success, but uh, that enthusiasm and curiosity are far greater assets than passing exams, um, which would give me a bit more confidence, I think, as I started out in life. But I, I got a brilliant lesson from Jeremy Fry, who is my first employer, first person I worked with. I, I once suggested that we do some market research for the sea truck landing craft. He said, don't bother with that, it's a great product, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, they, I mean, that might be a slightly silly outlook, but it's a great outlook, because market research is often bunkum and leads everybody astray. and. You know, you get much more fun out of making a great product which might not sell very well than you do doing market research and then the product sells very well. So <laughs> taking risk <laughs> and sometimes failing, um, but uh, trying to change things, trying to shake things up is much more fun than, than just being successful.
1: James Dyson, thank you very much for joining us.
0: You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and the inventor, James Dyson.
1: This has been a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell.
0: To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening.
2: If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in this series, please
1: go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.